Church, let's be faithful to be praying for Chespi and Casa Vida Iglesia from Playa Azul. Um, they, they need our prayers and they're praying for us uh, in this partnership. All right, let's, let's get to it in 1 Peter. We'll be in verse 13 where JT served us so well last week. And then we'll be going all the way down to verse 21. Let's read God's holy and inspired perfect word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May God bless the preaching of the word. You shall be holy, for I am holy. What do we do with a statement like that? It's a high command, a hard command. Well, if you're like me, your heart can run all kinds of unhelpful places. I can run and find an excuse to go to the lobby. No shade on the people in the lobby. I know that life, I have little ones. Or maybe I can log off the live stream. I'm not gonna listen to this word today. I can lie and just sit there and say, keep smiling and pretending like you're doing what he says you should do. I can get defensive and spend my whole time gearing up and saying, what's he gonna tell me to do? And just, instead of listening to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to my heart and helping me with, just seeking to rebut and put down and put off the commands the preacher's giving. Or, friends, or we can fight for holiness. Knowing that there is fresh grace from God to live out the commands he's calling to us to today. Friends, too few Christians are waging war with sin. Too many of us think that the Christian life is an easy ride. But God in these verses is calling us to battle, to set our mind in verse 13 on the Lord, the living hope, and to get ready to fight. And the verses we just read tell us that that mindset, setting our hope on future grace, leads us to real concrete actions here and now. We all need to fight. 
And let me just rush to say to the ladies here, this is not just a guy thing. This is not a men's breakfast sermon. See, guys walk into a room and they immediately size up all the other guys and say, who could I beat in a fight? And not only a few ladies do that. <laughs> so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about battling not to compare my family with that one family that just seems to be perfect. I'm talking about showing hospitality and seeking friendship, even though I've been ghosted and burned too many times to count. I'm talking about a holiness in all our conduct. Not perfection, friends. I am not perf perfect, but complete dedication. The grace that we've received is glorious. God wants so much more for us today than to live as though grace is just a get out of jail free monopoly card. He wants to actually impact our lives and change us this morning. The grace we've received does free us from guilt, does atone for sins completely, but it also brings about real change in our lives. We do not live a theological fiction as though Jesus did something, but it doesn't actually produce something in our lives. The grace that saved us transforms us so that we pursue holiness in all of our lives so that we can say no to temptation. We can resist worldliness and pursue godliness. And we can step into the holy life that God is calling us to explicitly in this text. So we don't need to run. We don't need to lie. We can sit and receive grace and experience an increased nobility and dignity as we fight. How do we fight? This text tells us two things. We fight for godliness in every action and we fight with heartfelt obedience. We fight for godliness in every action first. In verse 14, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And what's implicit in that statement is a reality that you and I both know. You maybe gave your life to Christ one day and you thought it was gonna be easy. But this, the saved sinner still battles with gravitational forces that want to pull us down. We have to seek to not be conformed by our former passions of ignorance. Ray Ortland said sin in the believer's life is as unchosen as hunger, as comfortable as sleep, as inevitable as gravity, as lethal as poison. Sin is a gravitational destructive force in our life that requires our resistance. I personally, in my own battle with sin, don't remember a time that I didn't struggle with receiving criticism. I look at guys like my good friend JT who seem to cherish it and they're like, oh, someone's gonna bring me critique and gets all excited about it. And I'm like, how does that happen? Even just this week, I sent my sermon out to a number of guys and my wife and asked for feedback and they, were, they gave me several changes that, that could substantially improve this sermon. You know what my response was? I moped. I was like Eeyore playing that part. But as my wife was caring for me, I experienced the help of the spirit to remember, it's not about me. It's about God's glory and it's about the good of his church. 
And he brought me to a place, by God's grace this morning, where I'm just excited for the changes that those brothers helped me with. But you know what? Brothers, sisters, we have to fight. We're not going to move from that place of mopey self-pity to a place of faith without crying out to God on our knees in prayer. Not a type of self-sufficient, I got this kind of faith, but a battling in prayer, desperate faith. It's calling you to fight. That pornography problem, it's not going to just poof, disappear at conversion or when you get married. You're not suddenly going to become Mrs. Chill overnight. Gossip, bitterness, judgmentalism, you need to fight, brothers and sisters. And sometimes it's not even just besetting sins. It's just the slow drift to worldliness that we have to fight. That's why... In verse 13, he told us to prepare our minds for action. So we know, as Philippians 2.12 tells us, that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God does the primary role in our battle for holiness. It is he who works and wills that godliness in us, but we still work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, don't we? We fight knowing that he's present in our lives. Friends, some of us are sitting here in a habitual pattern of sin and God's calling you to action this morning. John Piper has written this, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me, I act the miracle. That's the kind of faith that God calls us to in this text. Not self-sufficiency, but a faith that believes that God is going to work godliness in us even as we take steps of action. Even as we delete that app that keeps tempting us to say unhelpful, ungodly things or look at unholy images. Now, sanctification is not, this growth in godliness is not just a straight up, Perfect process. Sometimes you might think of it as going up the stairs. Like, I'm just getting better every day. No, David Pallison helpfully describes it as a guy going up a staircase with a yo-yo. Up and down, up and down. Overall, making progress to be more like Christ by his grace. But don't be discouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, if it feels like a battle. The presence of, of fight in your life Battling sin is an evidence of grace in your life. We should be warned, though, if we've lowered our standards to the point where there no longer is battle. If we're no longer sorrowful for sin. If we're no longer even resisting temptations. We must fight with faith in the grace we're promised. And when must we fight? Well, Peter says, as he has called you as holy, you also be holy on Sundays. No, he doesn't say that. In all your conduct. You also be holy, except in politics, you can fight dirty there on Facebook. No, in all your conduct. That word conduct is a way of talking about the general patterns of your life, what makes you who you are, how you live. And then he says it, all your conduct, right? Right? 
which helps us see that though he doesn't call us to perfection, he knows Peter's a sinner. He denied Christ, right? Though we're not perfect, there should be no category of our life that is not dedicated to the Lord, where we're not seeking godliness. There's no category of our life that's irrelevant to our faith. Now, what are we fighting for? Well, we fight for godliness, friends, a holy godliness. He said, you shall be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is not a holiness as we define it based on our strengths or what we're good at or the sins that I commit, they're not the bad ones. This is a holiness defined by the character of God, a godly holiness. So this call is comprehensive to be defined by the character of God. Even in those areas where God doesn't give us direct commands, those gray areas. How much should I be on my phone every week? What kind of food should I eat? The Bible doesn't directly address some of those categories in complete clarity, but it does give us principles in which to function. And ultimately, we can know if every category of our life really is submitted to the Lord, if we can answer this question with integrity. Can I thank God for this? So if you ever have that question mark, am I really pursuing the Lord in this? Am I, do I have permission to do this? You can ask yourself, if you're honest, can I, am I thanking God for this? Can I thank God for this? Or do I feel a pause in my spirit that's not allowing me to do it? In those areas where the Bible is clear, we submit and follow no matter how we feel. But in those gray matters, we still, even there, need to be holy in all our conduct. God's calling us to be holy in everything, all for him, all through him, and all patterned after his beautiful holiness. And second, so we fight for godliness in everything, but we fight with heart-filled obedience. We fight with heartfelt obedience. When we see scriptures like this that call us to comprehensive godliness, we can easily be discouraged. And frankly, we can even think things like this. Christians are just a sad, miserable, bu miserable bunch. And they're missing out on all the fun. All this talk of fighting for godliness, saying no to temptation. Man, this Christian life really seems terrible. And that is the straw man, the devil in the world want to paint of a Christian. But friends, that's not true. If we truly are born again to a living hope, if Christ really has saved us and is personally guarding our faith so that it's tested and revealed as genuine, you know what the result of that's gonna be? Heartfelt gratitude, a new heart of praise, not a, I gotta just pay God back for everything he did for me kind of gratitude, but a freely given, cheerful offering of praise. The glory of our faith is way greater than a Buddhistic denial. You see, are we called to battle temptation? Yes. Are we called to deny ourselves in certain areas? Yes. But the work of Christ on the cross is gives us access to the only relationship that will ever truly satisfy through our union with Christ, the Son of God, we get to call God our Father. So what the world longs for but will never find, we have in God a satisfying, compassionate, relentless love. 
And that privilege should inspire us to obey with heartfelt devotion. For everything you're giving up, brothers and sisters, you're receiving so much more in God. Now, how is this heartfelt devotion described? It's a little unique here. He says, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Whoa, with fear? What does that mean? Well, it means that we ought not just to obey, but we obey from the heart out with holy wonder and trembling joy. In contrast to a grace that saves us producing a I'm going to do what I want ethic, what it produces is such a strong desire to follow God, it can only be described as fear. It's so strong, the heart of regeneration that God gives you, that by his grace, it can only be described as fear. Now, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the fear of the Lord Um, So it's important for us to drill down a little bit here to know exactly what that means. First of all, brothers and sisters, it does not mean you cower in the darkness and hide from God, dreading him. That is not what it means. There is a kind of fear that looks like that. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus and repented of your sins and given him your life and cast yourself on him in saving faith, you should feel that way. Revelation says there were people who hide in caves and ask the rocks to fall on them to hide them. But that is not the saving faith that those who are redeemed by Christ should know. And even those of you who have not trusted in Christ, you can trust in him today and shift from terror to something entirely greater. The fear that Christians, brothers and sisters, are called to today is one that drives us towards God not away from him. A fear that drives us towards him and not to hide away from him. Exodus 20 is an interesting example of this where the Israelites are terrified because God's doing some crazy fireworks on this mountain and they just draw away from him. And Moses has these commands to them. Listen to them in Exodus 20. He says, Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Listen to what Moses said. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Wait, so they're not supposed to fear, but they're supposed to fear? Do you see how Moses and God's inspired word is distinguishing between two different types of fear here? A fear like Israel that would cause us to run from God and continue with our disobedient hearts. And a fear that runs to God in obedience. The fear of God leads us towards him and not away from him. Why do we fear God in this way? Well, verse 14 of 1 Peter says that we obey as obedient children. And then in verse 17, he says, and if you call on him as what? Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Isn't that interesting? Even as Peter reminds uh, these people of God being their perfect judge who shows no partiality, he reminds us that 
this judge is also our father. And so, brothers and sisters, we run to him. We come to him, though, in truth and not in fakeness. Unlike you and me, God was not surprised when a prominent church leader who had recently passed away was revealed to have been committing horrible sin throughout his life. God sees all. It's impossible to hoodwink him. And yet, though he sees my sin, and he doesn't rationalize it away like I do, though he is the perfect judge, I get to call him father. And so we run to him without pretension. And normally, friends, we'd run from a judge if we're guilty. If you're guilty and you know that judgment gavel's coming down, you better run. But because he's our father through the work of Christ, we can run to this holy God. So what does it look like to fear God in heartfelt obedience? First, we tremble. The fact that God is our father should never cause us to treat him less seriously. David Helm says this, whenever we begin thinking, oh, I can do this and get away with it and God will forgive me. After all, God is my father and therefore my friend, we are on dangerous ground. That he is father keeps us from dreading him. That he is judge keeps us from trivializing him. He is fearfully holy, yet ever bent to bless. And so we tremble, so we wonder, but we also rejoice. Because as we run to him, brothers and sisters, he sweeps us up in his fatherly embrace. And there we encounter the most glorious being in all the universe, the most satisfying, exciting, invigorating experience ever is to encounter God as your father. Far greater than saying no to whatever that temptation is. It's nothing compared to your father. When people can't encounter God's glory in the Bible, what happens to them? They go, bam, they're on their nose, right? But what does God do for those who trust in him? He picks them back up on their feet because our God, though he is holy and majestic and without Christ, we would fear him. He's a God that ever draws near to weak and sinful people. And one day God will make his dwelling place with man forever and he will be the cause of endless joy and satisfaction in our hearts. Amen. So we fear him with heartfelt obedience, not a list of rules to follow. Michael Reeves has written a powerful book called Rejoice and Tremble on the Fear of the Lord. If you're interested in the topic, I recommend picking it up. Here's how he describes the fear of God. He says, the living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. And so... We do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. This is the fear of the Lord. 
We run to him far beyond performing perfunctory motions or going through a set prayer, but a heart caught up in worship of our God. So come out of hiding, brothers and sisters, if you're there. If the holiness of God has been causing you to run, run to him in Christ. We are called to heartfelt obedience because God is our father. But that's not all Peter's got to say. Like a veteran preacher, he's about to bring a home for his people. He's got something else to say about why we seek God with heartfelt obedience. He's got something to say about the precious blood of Christ. Why, Peter, is Christ's blood so precious? Well, this is what he accomplished. When we were slaves to sin, completely trapped, unable to be delivered by money or self-help techniques or anything else, Jesus came and sought us in our need. And he, as the text says, ransomed us. He paid the price for all who trust in him in his death. And he accomplished something in that cross, that bloody, rugged cross that has eternal consequences. In fact, there's one translation that will even say, you are eternally ransomed. There's nothing temporary, nothing fragile, nothing up in the air about this deal with God. You are free, brothers and sisters. You are redeemed because Christ's blood is that glorious. You are free to tremble on your knees, to tremble in worship, and to tremble with a joy inexpressible because of this grace. And so we run to him. Why is his blood so precious? Well, his shed blood is our ransom. And Jesus, the better Passover lamb, without blemish, lived the perfect human life, always overcoming temptation, died in our place and paid the penalty of death that we should have paid. Listen, you can ransom a slave by paying a lot of money, but you can't ransom a sinner before a holy God with anything but the blood of Jesus Christ. There is power in the blood of Jesus. It's worthy of getting worked up about. It's worthy of clapping. It's worthy of worship and praise. He alone can satisfy the wrath of God an eternal wrath in one moment by shedding his pure and holy blood for us. And he alone in his resurrection from the death gives us a living hope that will not be put to shame. Oh, brothers and sisters, see the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Amen. So we tremble and we rejoice. We don't fear God as slaves cowering before him. We fear him as sons and daughters caught up with a wonder that we're a part of the family of God. We tremble. We fear. We don't treat him as though he's just one of us. But we run to him. Friends, there's... There's some change that can happen in your life if you, someone screams at you or shouts at you or just says, get your life together. But there's nothing that will change you like the grace of God. Amen. John Bunyan said, there's nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart as the grace of God. Tis that which makes a man fear. Tis that which makes a man tremble. Tis that which makes a man bow and bend and break to pieces. Nothing 
has the majesty and commanding greatness in and upon the hearts of the sons of men as has the grace of God. So friends, more than your record of righteousness, more than your holiness in all your conduct, fix your eyes on the grace in Christ that gives you access to your Father. And let us live giving everything to him. If you call on him as Father, who is the one who judges the living and the dead, conduct yourselves with fear during this journey and wandering path that sometimes feels dark, sometimes feels sunny. In seasons of blessing and trial, let us give him everything. Amen? Amen. Amen.